As we've been going, we've been looking at the question, what does it mean to live as light in the midst of darkness? And so this morning, like he said, we'll be looking at Philadelphia specifically, and the question we'll be asking is, what does Jesus call us to do and to believe in the midst of trouble? In other words, when it's going to cost us something to follow him, what should we believe? What should we do? So uh, before we hop into the letter, just a couple of things you should know about Philadelphia. It's in the seven letters, it's the only one that has no condemnation. It's full of promise. It's full of hope. It's full of affirmation. But the question's why. Uh, And Jesus says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. See, it's uh, the church in Philadelphia was probably several decades into following Jesus at this point, and they knew something already about the consequences of doing that. So they had faced professional problems, legal and civil problems. Uh, They'd also faced some social problems. So The trade associations, which Keith has been talking about, the trade guilds, they govern the small businesses, but they were centered around pagan idol worship. And so not denying Jesus meant, at best, missed opportunity, exclusion, and at worst, it meant persecution. Uh, In terms of Rome, they had already set up emperor worship and were demanding that you would say Caesar was God. So at worst, it meant um, jail, property seizure, maybe even death. In terms of social costs, the Jews had already publicly rejected Jesus and kicked the Christians out of the synagogue. So at the very best, they were considered meaningless heretics. And at the worst, they were hunted down as enemies of Israel and enemies of Rome. So in summary, you see that the church in Philadelphia knew something about the consequences of following Jesus, and they faced that decision again day after day after day. So... With that said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will be on the screen, but they're also at the top of the sermon guide. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So again, the question we're going to look at this morning is, what does Jesus call us to believe and to do in the midst of trouble? And to answer that, we're going to look at three things specifically. First, what does Jesus say about himself? Second, we'll take a look at what Jesus promises to the church. And then third, we'll look at what Jesus calls us to do. And so first, uh, what does Jesus have to say about himself? You'll see in summary that he says, I'm in complete control. 
And he says specifically that he's the one who opens doors and shuts them. He says that he knows our circumstances and that we'll dwell uh, with him when he is coming very, very soon. So uh, to begin in verse seven, Jesus describes himself as the holy one, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So what's he talking about here? So when Jesus says he's the holy one, the true one, he's saying that he's the only real God, that he's the only one who can give access to life, that all the promises of these other idols are false promises, they're lies. So to this uh, little church who's dealing with the consequences of choosing them, he's saying, you've chosen well. He's reassuring them about the choice that they've made. And then when he says, uh, I have the key of David, What's he talking about? Well, he's saying that he has all authority, that he's the one who sits enthroned above the kingdom and that he's governing the kingdom. He controls access to it. And then he talks about how he leverages this uh, authority. He says that he uses it to open doors and he uses it to shut doors. And in saying that he opens, he's saying that he controls access to the kingdom. And in saying he shuts, he's also saying that he controls judgment. Right, so to this little tiny church, he's not only saying that you've chosen well, but he's saying no one else can get you in and nothing else can keep you out. So the choice that you've made makes all the difference. And then next you'll see uh, in verse eight, twice Jesus says, I know. Specifically, he says, I know your works. And then he goes on to say that I know you have but little power. So what's interesting is why does Jesus follow a claim about opening and shutting doors by saying he's the only one or he, that, that he knows? I know this uh, past week I had the experience, someone was giving me some advice and what went through my heart was, if you only knew, if you just don't get it, if you only knew. And so what Jesus is saying here to the church in Philadelphia is I do know. I know your circumstances. I've seen your faithfulness. I make it my business to know what's going on with you. In Psalm 34, uh, we read, it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are inclined towards their cry. See, Jesus is saying, uh, not only am I in complete control, not only do I govern the kingdom, but I am so intimately aware of what is going on with you. There's nothing that I miss, not missing it. And then again, in, uh, in verse 12, Jesus makes his third statement about himself. He says, I'm coming soon. In other words, he says, my return is imminent. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. Uh, and if I'm really, really honest with you, and maybe you're in the same place, when I'm in the middle of hard times, this is probably the hardest question that I face. If Jesus has all the authority in the world and he knows what's going on with me, why doesn't he do something about it? If uh, he has all the power, what good is that if the suffering goes on forever? And so the church in Philadelphia, they knew that they couldn't really do a lot about their circumstances. And we're probably in a similar place when we're in the middle of it. But they had put their hope in one who could. They had trusted in one who could control their circumstances. And to him, to them, he says, I'm coming soon. I'm I'm on my way, I'm doing something about it. So you'll see in asserting that he is in complete control of the situation, Jesus says three things. He says, uh, 
I am the, I'm the one who opens doors and shuts them. He says, I know your circumstances. And then he says, I'm coming soon. So the reason that's so important is he's laying the first foundation of sustaining them. By that, I mean, it's, uh, it's so important when you think about the question, who's in control? And does he understand me or not? And what do I believe about his return? It, it makes all the difference in whether they persevere, don't persevere. So taking a look at what Jesus says about himself, uh, but it kind of begs the question, what'll happen when he returns? How's the story gonna unfold? So to that, we'll turn to the second point and we'll take a look at what Jesus promises to the church. You'll see uh, in verse eight, in summary, Jesus says, I've set before you an open door, not a shut one, an open one. And uh, it's interesting in here, three times Jesus uses the word behold or pay attention. If uh, those of you who are from the South, it means, hey, you know, you're trying to get someone's attention. He's saying, be very, very careful to adopt my point of view on your circumstances. And what he's saying is that this door, it's not a shut one. I know when things are hard, when you run into difficult things and things aren't going the way you planned, it can feel like the door is shut. But what I say is that this is an open door. And so if we're gonna be uh, encouraged by that, it's also interesting to ask the question, what's the door open to? It's no good if it's open to more and more problems, right? It has to be open to something that uh, is gonna turn out well for us. And so to answer that question, you have to fast forward to Revelation 3.20, when Jesus says, if anyone opens the door, I'll come into him. And then just 15 verses later in Revelation 4.1, when John is writing, he says, behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And he says, and there was a throne in heaven and one seated on the throne. See, in, the, in Revelation, the open door is a door to Jesus himself. So here in challenging them to adopt this point of view, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who opens doors. I'm the one who shuts them. And these circumstances that you're going through, these trials, they're an open door to myself. I'm not rejecting you. So then the question is, how is Jesus giving us uh, more of himself? And to answer that, we're gonna look at the three promises that he makes throughout the letter. The first being, if you hop with me to verse nine, he says, they and you could probably presume us, we, uh, they will know that I have loved you. See, what Jesus is saying is when it all washes out, it'll be clear that this wasn't me rejecting you. When it all washes out, it'll be clear that it was you and not them that I've loved. It's, uh, it's interesting when you think about the times when you're in the middle of a difficult situation, how precious those words would be for Jesus to look at you and say, I'm not rejecting you. It's this other person. It's, it's not them that I love. It's you. You're the one that I love. And so uh, then as you turn to verse 10, it's, it's interesting to think about how Jesus follows this. If we're, if I'm honest with you, uh, what I know is that the thought that I'll eventually know that Jesus loves me, uh, it can feel a long way off. It can feel really, really, really far away. When my heart starts to wander, which I'm guessing Philadelphia's 
heart probably was as well. I wonder, does he really love me? These circumstances, they probably feel like they're gonna destroy me. Like if I were to guess how this is gonna play out, it's gonna go bad. Um, and what about the other people? Why are they doing so well? Why are they prospering? <clears throat> and so in verse 10, Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. See, in this uh, word, when it says, I will keep you, that word means keep you safe. It means safeguard you. It, it doesn't mean I'm gonna yank you up out of it. And we could, I'll table that. We could have a ton of debate at some point. But uh, what he's saying is, it's not that hard things won't come. They're gonna come. He's saying that when they do come, they won't destroy you. When they do come, I'll preserve you. Right, so this is a church that's in the middle of dealing with consequences they are uh, following Jesus, but in doing that, they're making really hard decisions. And at every turn, something seems to be going a little askew. And in each of those times, Jesus says, it won't destroy you. It's not gonna destroy you. And then uh, third, we turn to uh, verse 12. Jesus makes his final and probably most exciting, probably uh, most audacious promise. He says, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. See, the question is, what is uh, the pillar why do they have names written on them? Um, so to answer that, you have to fast forward a little bit to Revelation 21. You don't have to flip there. I'll just read it to you. It says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, Jesus wasn't saying, it'll be all right. When I come back, I'm gonna make you into concrete blocks. I'm gonna make you into something. He's saying, I'm gonna make you a permanent fixture in the presence of the Lord. And when I do that, you'll be known as the ones who are loved by me, the ones who belong specifically to me. Jesus himself is, this is the lamb is the temple. We'll be set up as the ones who are known as having belonged to him. It's, uh, it's funny in the context, in the ancient Near East, it was really common that when a major victory would happen, when one king would go over and conquer another king, after that would happen, they would set up a monument inside the temple of that city's God to commemorate the victory. It would say that this king's name would be on it, but it was also basically saying that the God was the reason for the victory. And so here Jesus is saying, the story of your lives, every time Philadelphia that you've chosen me and it's gone bad, but then I've proven that it was my love towards you, those will be set up as monuments to my love for you. That when you choose me, that throughout eternity, you'll be known as a people who are loved by their God, 
And then he says, I'll be worshiped as a God who loved his people. So it's, it's amazing to think that the final promise is that ultimately the story of their lives will be part of Jesus's eternal worship. That the story of their lives will be the way that they were known that, he, that they were loved by him. And that the way that he's known that he loves his people. Okay, so, so far we've looked at uh, what does Jesus have to say about himself? He says specifically that he's in complete control. He said that by saying that he's the one who opens doors and no one shuts them. Uh, he also said that he knows our circumstances completely. And then he says that he's coming soon, that he's, he's en route, he's on his way. And then we took a look at his promises. He said that your difficult circumstances are an open door to me. They're not a shut door, an open door. He says that uh, you'll know that you are loved by me. He says that I will keep you, meaning I'll preserve you. And then uh, finally, he says, you'll dwell with me forever. But what's interesting is um, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at uh, the two things that he calls them to believe. He calls the church to go and do something. And so uh, that turns to our third and final point. What does Jesus call us to do in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of difficulty? Uh, before we hop into it, just by way of reminder, the church in Philadelphia, this letter came to them with no condemnation. It, had, it was full of praise. It was full of affirmation. It, to Jesus, this was a church who was doing exactly what they were made to do. They were being light in the darkness. Uh, but he still had some exhortation. He, he said, you're not, you're not done. It's not finished, right? So uh, if you turn with me to verse 11, you'll see Jesus, uh, he only makes one explicit com uh, command in the whole entire letter. And what he says is, hold fast what you have. So to see what he means by that, we're going to take a look at three things. First, what does the word hold fast actually mean? It's not a word that we use a lot and hold fast to something this morning. We'll also take a look at what, why Jesus says we should hold fast. Like, why is it so important? And then third, we'll take a look at what exactly we're supposed to hold fast to. So first, uh, what does the word hold fast mean? It's, um, I know I'm a redneck, so I'm going to completely butcher this. But uh, in the Greek, the phrase is kriteo, what you echo. I know that's not how it's pronounced, but um, in it, the word echo means to hold something in your hand. It, it's sort of like my, I'm holding onto my iPhone right now. But the word kriteo means to seize onto something so that it can't be taken away or so that you won't drop it or so that it can't be discarded. It's the word that's used when a sheep would fall down into a well and they would reach down to grab it. And uh, it's also the word that was used when they arrested Jesus, that they went and seized him. That's what Kriteo means. Uh, Y'all know us well enough to know we, we've got this two-year-old running around our house. And uh, man, that dude, he loves his toys. He's got this, there's this little screwdriver that he'll walk around and he fixes everything with it. It's like the, he fixes the you know, water spigot, he fixes the dishwasher, he fixes my boo-boo. I, I got a knee that needed a screwdriver. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, but this other weekend, we had another boy staying with us, and he wanted the screwdriver as well, right? And so every time Caleb would come around the corner, 
with a screwdriver, this little boy would try to take it from him. He'd walk up and try to snatch it. And every time he would do that, Caleb would put this, he would tighten his grip, he'd clamp down on it with these white knuckles. And then he'd yank it away and he'd say, no. Right? So everybody's laughing because we're a church full of toddlers. We know exactly what a two-year-old yanking something away means. And I know it's funny, but that's actually the language Jesus uses. See, when Caleb was walking around holding the screwdriver, just doing stuff with it, fixing stuff with it, that word's echo. He was holding it in his hand. And that's exactly what the church in Philadelphia was doing. They were holding on to Jesus. They, they had him and they were leveraging his promises and they were doing what he was calling them to do. But then when Caleb faced some real adversity, faced some real, real struggle, this kid tried to actually take the thing away from him. Caleb put this white-knuckled, you're not gonna take this from me death grip on it. And that word is kriteo. See, Jesus is, uh, he's talking to a church in Philadelphia that's already holding on to him. And what he's saying is tighten your grip on me. Clamp down a little, a little tighter. So we've seen that what uh, the word hold fast means, it means to seize. It means to make sure that something can't be set aside or discarded. But to what end? Why, you know, why should we do it? And so Jesus answers that in the second half of the verse when he says, so that no one can seize your crown. This is, this one gets a little tricky, but uh, the crown Jesus is talking about isn't the ruler's crown. It's not, he's not talking about when you go to sit on the throne and rule with him in eternity. It's the garland that in the ancient Near East you would wear when you're celebrating a victory. So there's a you know, in the Super Bowl, they throw a big party afterwards and everybody pops champagne. It's, it's, it's the garland that they would wear when they were celebrating. And then when he says, so that no one will seize it, he's not inferring that someone's gonna come along and steal it. He's not saying this is the kind of thing that someone, if you're not paying attention, can just nab from you. He's saying, unless you're careful, there's real real circumstances, real people, real situations that can cause you to set it aside. Maybe even just cause it to slip out of your hand a little bit, right? If, uh, if you guys own an iPhone 6, you know what Jesus is talking about here. Technically, I could take this and I could chuck it across the room, uh, but I'm not gonna do that. And then if you're anything, hopefully you haven't done this, but if you're anything like me, you've left it on an airplane before, right? Uh, but probably what's most common, and I just did this on yesterday, maybe it was Friday or yesterday, is you're using it. You're holding it in your hand, doing what it's designed to do, and then it slips out of your hand and it crashes on the sidewalk and you guys know the rest of the story. The whole thing shattered. See, it's what our faith is... Uh, it can be a little bit like that. It's, it's not something that we're really likely to just discard, to just chuck across the room. And in a church like this, it's, it's, uh, it's such a part of who so many of us are that we're not really likely to just forget about it. We won't just leave it on the plane, right? But what is super possible is our hearts can drift, right? It can slip out of our hand just a little bit, right? And so Jesus says, hold fast. He says, cling tight, put a grip on what you already have in your hand, right? 
So we've seen that uh, hold fast means to seize on to something. And then the reason we should do it is that it's possible for our hearts to drift. That, that's just true, right? Um, but just one quick note, I just want to be really careful here. It's, we're, um, we're not talking about salvation, not talking about someone who the Lord's chosen, being able to undo what the Lord's already done. Um, talking about celebration. And we're talking about the way the story of your life is remembered. So when you get into eternity future, will the story of your life be set up as a monument to his love or not? Will he be seen as the one who conquered in your life? That's what he's talking about. He's saying hold fast because the story matters. So uh, lastly, we're just going to take a look real quick at what exactly should we hold fast to? Right? So already we've seen that the church in Philadelphia, they don't have a lot of resources. They're, it says they have little power, meaning they have little influence or they're small. So Jesus isn't talking about some asset or some um, set of resources that they have. They're not saying defend your house or cling on to the church building that you have. He says they have three things and those are what they should hold on to. The first is he says, you've kept my word. The second is you've not denied my name. And then the third is that you've endured patiently. See, in other words, he says, you've kept my promises and uh, you've not given your heart away to another. And he said, you've waited good. You've been very, very good at what it means to what it means to wait. So to the church in Philadelphia, he's saying, take this thing that you already hold in your hand, which is me, and cling tighter to it. Put a, put a tighter grip on it. So uh, just as we circle back to the original question we asked, we saw that uh, Jesus calls his church in the midst of trouble to believe two things and to do one thing. The first thing he calls us to believe is that he's in complete control. Just let that sit for a second. When you're in the midst of a really, really hard situation, it's hard to, to think that he's the one who's in complete control of the situation. And then he goes on to say that we should believe that our circumstances are an open door and not a shut one, and that that door is leading to himself, right? And then what he calls us to do is in the same way that we've been holding on to him, hold on a little tighter, right? Just clamp down just a little bit tighter. Um, so before we uh, wrap up with Philadelphia, before we move off of the reflection, we've got just one more stop to make. Uh, if we're gonna actually hear what the Spirit says to the churches, we need to turn to ourselves for just a minute and look at Christ Church East. And what, what is Jesus saying to Christ Church East through his letter to Philadelphia 2,000 years ago. So the, um, the idolatry, and I say this gently, I'm, I'm saying this as a member of the congregation, not, I'm, I'm saying it as probably the chief among this. Um, the idolatry we face in 21st century Jacksonville, it's just as pervasive as it was in first century Philadelphia. It, it's everywhere. It is literally everywhere. It's in our homes. It's in our living rooms. It's made its way into our relationships. But what's super interesting for us is it's, it's more subtle. And so it's a little more dangerous, right? So we don't, when I was on my way driving here, I didn't pass 
the public worship of little statues, right? But this week, what I lived in the midst of was the private worship of things like financial security, the American dream, career success, even family stability, right? And every single day in Jacksonville, these idols, they wage war for our hearts. Every single day they demand that we sacrifice to them or we feel like there's this thing deep down inside of us that's gonna die if we don't, right? And the, the idolatry we're in the middle of, it's not singular. It's not like there's this one God who's competing for, with Jesus for the worship of our hearts. It's, it's probably more like the Parthenon, right? Where there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of gods that are all, all demanding that we sacrifice to them, all vying for our worship. And so we're tired. We are very, very tired. Uh, there's this, this study looking into how people answer the question, how are you? And prior to 2001, almost everyone would say, y'all probably know the answer. I'm good, I'm good. But if you look forward to today, the universal answer is, I'm busy. We've shifted from I'm good to I'm busy. And probably very soon, that answer is gonna become I'm tired. All right? I've already started to see, if you go around and ask people, say, how you doing? I'm, I'm tired, I'm good, but I'm tired. Right? It, it, it makes a ton of sense. We're, we live in the middle of the pressure to keep up, to do more, to be better, to try harder. And what's interesting about that is as you look at the, the great war for our hearts, the, the war that's been playing out over 2,000 years, the devil, he, he's been unsuccessful, right? And so today, the church is prevailing Jesus is prevailing. The gospel is thriving. And so what he does today is he tries to distract us, right? He preoccupies our hearts. He endlessly harasses us with great promises of really good things. And his intent is to keep us so intensely busy that we never answer the real deep question of our heart, which is who will you love? Who are you gonna love? See, the... Um, Different than Philadelphia, it's not our lips that are invited to deny Jesus, it's our hearts. So we, every day, we face the pressure to set aside our trust in Jesus and place our hope in things like, again, financial security that comes with a certain standard of living or uh, getting the exact right parenting style chosen or being thought well of by the right people or the one I'm most guilty of is staying late and missing dinner to fire off one last email because I need to please my boss in hope that my next performance review is gonna go well, right? And the, this list, it goes on and on and on. There, if you just think about your own life, you could probably rattle off a half a dozen of them. See, when we place our hope in those things and we exchange them for Jesus's promises and what he has to say about us, Jesus says that those false promises are lies, that they're slavery, right? And to the one who's enslaved, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm lowly and gentle in heart and that's where you'll find rest for your souls. 
He says uh, to the one who's tired and burdened and weary, he says, it's in returning, it's in rest that you'll be saved. He says, it's quietness and it's trust that'll make you strong, right? So every time we face the pressure today to set aside Jesus and put our hope in one of these things, what he's saying is to bring that to him, right? Take this thing, bring it to him, ask him what he would say about it, and then cling to what he has to say, right? In other words, come to Jesus, learn from him, and let him give you rest for your souls. So thinking about you guys, the Christ Church East, in some ways, we're this little church living in the midst of darkness, right? And we're thriving. Like the Lord is prospering us. We're growing and he's giving us influence in the city. But you guys are the faithful ones. You are just like Philadelphia. You're the ones who've kept his word. You've not denied his name. You've been enduring patiently. I've watched it in story after story after story of choosing him instead of choosing uh, to deny him. And see, today, Jesus says the door is open to you. He says he loves you. He loves you more than you love yourself. He's per, he is pursuing you harder than you're pursuing him. He says when the story washes out, you'll know that he loved you. He says when the trial comes, and it'll come, it's going to visit you. He says it'll, he'll keep you. It won't destroy you. And then he says, ultimately, when he comes back, you're gonna dwell with him forever, that your story will be part of his eternal worship. Right? So to wrap up, what is it that we're supposed to do? Right? What, what does Jesus call Christ Church East, this faithful little church to do? Well, today was a little more intense than yesterday, and tomorrow is probably gonna be a little more intense than today was, and I know you guys, uh, you'll go on every day to more and more responsibility. And as you do, you'll have a little less and less margin in your life, right? And at every single turn, the question of your life is gonna be, who will you love? The question's not gonna be, what are you doing or where are you going or how are you gonna get there? The question is gonna be, who are you gonna give your heart to? Who are you going to put your hope in? So you guys are the ones who've already put your hope in Jesus. And I'll just say this. If, if you're here today and you haven't put your hope in Jesus, hold on to him today. Reach out and take hold of him. But to you, little church, what Jesus says is hold fast to me. He says, let your hearts, not just your hand, put a white knuckle grip on me. Let's pray. Jesus, you uh, are the holy one and the true one. You're the one who opens doors and no one shuts them. And Lord, we take rest in knowing that you know our circumstances, that you love us and are pursuing us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to hold tight to you. Lord, that you would give us a tighter grip on yourself and Lord, we thank you for your promise that you're coming soon and that when you return, we'll dwell with you forever. Amen.